This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. The baseball season has been turned upside down in all parts of the game and probably more on the minor league side than anywhere else. The minor league season will most likely be canceled altogether. Some major league organizations have continued paying their minor league players at least a small portion of their money, but the rest of the employees of those teams and the local businesses surrounding them have suffered during the shutdown. Most minor league teams have been waiting since April, but the short season leagues that begin after the major league draft were set to open this week. Obviously, that's not going to happen. That includes the New York Penn League, which has teams in Brooklyn, Staten Island, and in the upper suburbs of the Hudson Valley. The Hudson Valley Renegades are the Tampa Bay Rays affiliate in the New York Penn League. They're based in the Wappingers Falls Fishkill area just outside of Poughkeepsie. It's about an hour from Yankee Stadium but only about 10 minutes from my home. I've attended some games in the past there with my family and friends, a very fan-friendly environment for sure, that if they ever get started again at all, are having to readjust the things that make them and all of minor league baseball just so fan-friendly to begin with. To discuss this and more, I spoke this week to Steve Gleiner, the president of the Hudson Valley Renegades and a minor league front office man for the last three decades. For some context on where minor league baseball teams stand right now and for a few colorful stories from his early days with the Albany Colony Yankees in the late 1980s, here is my conversation with Steve Gleiner. Steve, the first thing I want to ask you is uh, when you were sitting in mid-March and all this happened, did you ever dream that three months out you'd reach what you would consider opening day and you would not be allowed to open? Was that even a thought in your mind at the time? Honestly, not really. <laughs> my my thought was is that this would probably go maybe four or six weeks and then things would start reopening and, and we'd be ready to go. So the fact that we're sitting here in mid-June and everything is still up in the air is definitely not what, what I was hoping for and certainly not what I expected. So your season's a little bit different because you start in mid-June as a short season league. What would normally have been happening over the course of the last three months with you and your staff and your employees uh, and the organization, and what's happened instead over the last three months? So typically we would we were just getting to the point of where uh, a lot of things would start to fall into place to get ready for our season in mid-March, and as time would get closer to the season – uh, or oh, the start of the season, uh, we would have a lot of things in place and we would just go through this natural progression of getting ready for opening day. Uh, when everything stopped in mid-March, uh, just like for everybody, it, it was very unusual. And, and somebody who's worked in baseball like myself for over 30 years, uh, you're, you're almost wired in a certain way where you're, you know, you're looking at the calendar and as days are ticking off, you start getting 
a little antsy because we're supposed to be getting ready for a season. Um, and we're not doing that right now. Everything is shut down. Everything is unusual. There's no playbook for any of this. Yeah. So um, we as the staff, we, we've, we've, our biggest goal was to prepare ourselves for when we would be able to start playing baseball again from a readiness perspective. We put together a COVID-19 readiness plan, which included a lot of action items for getting the ballpark open uh, in the COVID-19 world. Uh, based on what we knew at the time. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so we had a lot of things in place ready to go for when we would be able to open the ballpark. Now, of course, here we are sitting in mid-June, and we don't know when that's going to be, but we're ready. You know, whenever that day should come, hopefully it's this season. I'm going to get into all that stuff in a moment, but I want to give people a little picture of, of who the Renegades are and, and really what kind of an impact we're talking about. How many full-time, part-time employees uh, would you usually be uh, having on staff at this point of the year? Our full-time staff is 14 people, and then our full-time, our part-time staff going into the season, we have over 150 people that work around the ballpark in different facets of the operation, from the parking lot to food and beverage um, to game day operations. So there, there's a lot of people that would normally be uh, around the ballpark here would, would have been starting next week. All right, so – uh, what's been the impact on your 14 full-time and have the part-timers had any capacity to do anything for you whatsoever? With regard to the uh, full-time staff, we've all but just been uh, you know, working behind the scenes, again, preparing for what we hope would be a season and, and are still continuing to do that. As far as the part-timers go, um, unfortunately, without games uh, being played here this season at this point, uh, everything sits on hold. So everybody's kind of in standby at this point. And you're still kind of holding out hope that there's going to be a season, even though everything that we've been led to believe, you know, even just uh, going off the talks for a major league season, uh, I think we've, you know, I know people in my industry have pretty much written off the uh, ability to have a minor league season. You're still holding out hope that there's going to be one. Well, we are, and, and we're realistic, too, and we're looking at the calendar and seeing days ticking off the calendar without having uh, a definite answer uh, of, of the season. So for me, I'm, I'm one of these plan B types. I always want to make sure we're ready to go when somebody calls and says, hey, we're going we're gonna to play games this year. Um, so we're, that's, that's, how we're, that's the mode we're in. We're in preparation mode just to be sure that we're ready to go if that should happen. Uh, but there are a few things that have to happen first. Certainly Major League Baseball. Uh, and the players union, that's first and foremost from Major League Baseball side. That's that's going to happen before minor league baseball does. And I think a lot of the protocols that would be in place would come from whatever agreements are, are made between Major League Baseball and the Players Association. I think a lot of those types of um, scenarios would play out with minor league baseball as well, just in terms of the conditions and, and the types of uh, things that would be put in place to make sure that the player's safety is is well taken into account. Um, and then the other uh, item, Sweeney, that, that we have to look at is also the phases here in New York State mm-hmm. in terms of what kind of capacity can we open to when we're able to open the ballpark. Um, we would not play games here without fans in the ballpark like some of the other models that have been talked about. Mm-hmm. That's just not realistic for minor league baseball for, at any level. Uh, we really need to have fans in the stands. We don't have the types of media rights revenue opportunities that Major League Baseball is looking at in playing games with nobody in the tenant. So um, that would really need to come into play. And I think part of the problem um, is that you're talking about different states with different timelines for reopening. So minor league baseball is in states all across the country. 
you may have different states with different guidelines in place at different times. So, right. you know, coordinating all that might be difficult. Well, especially because you're talking about a league. Every league plays in multiple states, so uh, multiple regions. So it's not all created equal. You're, you know, you might be ready, but somebody else in your league, like Brooklyn or Staten Island, or somebody else, might not because of simple geography. Exactly, and and even New York State, like you just said, you know, New York City is a little bit behind where we are here in Dutchess County. So um, there's a lot of moving parts, and we're all uh, we all recognize that. So we're we're just hoping that things might happen here for this year and we're going to be ready if it does. Is there a, a percentage figure that you can give me of, of what uh, portion of your revenue ticket sales actually accounts for? You know, it, it's a pretty big chunk. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say it's certainly in the uh, 40% range for us just off the top of my head. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, having people in the ballpark is, is, is a big thing. And of course you just mentioned tickets, but then you've got the other revenues. You have food and beverage, you have merchandise, yep. Um, and so, you know, when you put all that into account and I think major league baseball is looking at it the same way and that's probably why, you know, some of the, some of the timeline issues that they're running into right now, we're trying to come to an agreement or, or, are happening. I'm, I'm curious how you guys went about going through your reopening protocols as far as concessions and gift shops, especially, I mean, these are types of businesses that around the rest of the country in our area have been shut down completely. You know, you can't do curbside pickup at a baseball game. You know, you need, (laughs) you need lines at concession stands. You have hot dog vendors roaming the stands and the gift shops. You know, I, I found that to be maybe the most fascinating part of this because, you know, I know based on what we're going through right now, I don't feel all that comfortable rifling through a rack of T-shirts that have, you know, you don't have time to clean and sanitize every rack of merchandise uh, before someone goes in there. And the uh, type of traffic that, that you hope and expect to have in that store isn't necessarily conducive to what we're trying to accomplish here, um, you know, post-coronavirus or even midst-coronavirus. So, what kinds of protocols have you set forth for those specifically concessions and gift shops? And have you even thought about like dry run type stuff to see how that could actually play out and where the holes are? That's some great question, Sweeney. And, and, and a lot of this, like I said before, there's no playbook for any of this. Yeah. Uh, all of us as operators have to be creative. We have to think outside the box. We have to look at the, uh, in our case here, the New York forward website, which has, a lot of the guidelines in place, the CDC website, um, and a lot of this stuff changes week by week. Um, some of the parameters that, that are out right now may change two weeks from now, depending on the new information that they have and that they're sharing with, with uh, any business operator. So um, for us, it, it was a matter of we started the process probably two weeks after all the shutdown started. We were very early April, and we were starting to look at um, how we can operate our stadium in, in this era with these types of things in place in terms of social distancing, uh, sanitizing of areas, common spaces, restrooms, um, distancing the concourse, you know, uh, and it's, a, it's quite a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, seating, the seating manifest. How do, you, how do you come up with a seating manifest where you can effectively distance people? Um, and, and it comes down to just you know, a lot of different conversations, talking to different people in the industry um, who have ideas. We, we love sharing ideas and amongst all of our teams in our in our organization, our ownership group, our, our league, minor league baseball in general, um, even with major league operators. And so 
uh, you know, there's a lot of different pieces to the puzzle that you're that you're referring to. Uh, just with with regard to the merchandise shop, um, there there's you can't operate it the way you always have. Mm-hmm. So there's, you have to look at things now as what is the new normal, and the new normal is never, definitely a little more complicated than than yeah. what we were used to. <laughs> so um, uh, with regard to how we would set it up, there is definitely, uh, and we don't have a large shop here at Dutch Stadium, so. Um, if we have to remove racks, there's less opportunity to have merchandise on the floor. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned about, um, you know, people, uh, touching surfaces and all that. And, and it, it's definitely complicated. I, I will tell you that as an operator, <laughs> we, we put a lot of things in place just in terms of the sanitation side of things. Um, with regard to food and beverage, um, uh, we, we work with our, uh, point of sale system to go into a opportunity where we can do cashless uh situation where mm-hmm. people can order on an app and we can do a pickup point uh similar to like, like a lot of the restaurants are doing right now out and about um so where 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 we can eliminate some of the traditional where you've got lines of people um where they would be picking up food in the ballpark and we could do just pickup points where they pre-order and 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 they would actually go get it from a location we could even do in-seat delivery um, so we, we were, we were able to come up with a lot of different ways and, and, uh, we feel like we could effectively do it. I think just like anything else, when you have new things in place, there would definitely be some hiccups and it will definitely take us several games to get our, our routine going here. But I think that we could definitely pull it off. Now, the big question is, is how many people would be in the building and that, right. and that's really still to be, to be determined with phase four coming up. Uh, we haven't heard about what kind of capacity, uh, sports arenas and stadiums would be allowed to open up with. So we're your, still waiting on that. Your stadium holds how many? 4,500. And average attendance last year was what? A little over 4,000. Okay. So you're almost to capacity uh, every exactly. single night. Yeah. So here, here's, here's my little thing about every time I hear about, okay, you can space people out. Yes, you can. But... Every five minutes, there is a foul ball hit into the stands. And what <laughs> right. happens when, when that happens? Nobody stays in their seats. They all converge and they all run after it. You got 50 right. kids running after one foul ball. Uh, that to me seems to be just the little, you know, as John McClain would say in Die Hard, the monkey and the wrench in this plan yep. when you're thinking about distancing people in seats. And, and even, listen... As you said, you got a significant portion of revenue from ticket sales and you're near capacity every single night. You cut that down. I, I would guess at best a quarter of your capacity is probably right. what you'd have to operate at, right? Yeah, we've looked at different models. We've put together different plans with 25% up to 50%. I don't, we don't have anything above that because we don't expect that certainly this year that we, if we were able to play, that we would be able to play above 50%. So we have different models in place just in terms of how many people on staff we would need to accommodate that. Um, and, and again, a lot of the things are changing too with in terms of how you have to operate in the COVID-19 world. So sometimes you may have to look at things where you would have to, uh, maybe you could decrease certain staff because you have fewer people, but you might have to increase other staff, let's say on your your clean team and your sanitation people mm-hmm. um, just to, to keep up with what's required. So uh, in terms of your question about a foul ball, I think a lot of what's going on right now um, is also going to require people that 
people have to take responsibility for their own <laughs> yeah. actions. Yeah. I, I mean, um, you know, I, 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 I've been down in Florida for a few weeks and, and it's a very different world down there right now. Uh, yeah. they, they, they closed later. They opened earlier. Um, they already, uh, have a lot of things going on in Florida that we don't have here in New York yet. So, but it's interesting to watch how, you know, people are still policing themselves. And I think that in any situation, if you go into a supermarket or a retail store, everybody has to take a little bit of responsibility uh, for their own actions. And, and, and I think that you're going to have to see that in, in facilities like arenas and stadiums as well. You know, and Steve, I think the big thing here is, you know, minor league baseball sells itself a certain way. Your game is built on the experience, the fan experience, and it's not the stars or even the team loyalty. The team loyalty is built by the fact that you're just in the town that people live in. It's not, okay, right. we're, we're here to root for this team specifically. Um, but the fan experience is completely different. I would, you know, you have to go about a different way of marketing this, I would think, in order to maximize what you're trying to do because you're no longer able to sell this the way you have in the past. You're right, Sweeney. It, it, it's a very different uh, experience moving forward. Um, and, and a lot of it is going to be determined by Major League Baseball as well because, let, for instance, one of the great things at a minor league game is the fan interaction with players. Um, where players are always signing autographs along the baselines for the fans that are down in those seats. Um, we would have players that would be on the concourse signing autographs right. for fans before games. Uh, I don't see where that interaction is going to happen, at least in the short-term uh, future. Uh, even even with our mascot, our mascot, mm -hmm. Rascal, or yeah. Raccoon, who's been a staple for us for all these years, um, we, haven't, we, we don't see where we can have our mascot out in the crowd interacting with the fans like we like we've always right. been able to do so these are little things that aren't really little in our world like you said uh the intimacy of the minor league experience is definitely going to change i think everybody would understand that though and and i, and I would hope that people look at it from a standpoint of we're doing these things because this is what's required in the world that we're living in at the moment our hope is that eventually over time that we can get back to the normal that we're all used to um but i think people would welcome the opportunity to just see live baseball right now, even yeah. with some of these uh, adjustments that have to be made short term. Well, and there's also the challenge of trying to appeal to the younger audience. You know, we talk about all the time about how to make baseball more appealing to kids. Minor league baseball does a really good job of that, mostly because they're distracting the kids from the baseball with all these other things around <laughs> the ballpark. You know, there there are huge lines at the bouncy house at Dutchess yep. Stadium, and that is something you no longer will be able to provide, at least Correct. as you said, in the short term. Correct. Yeah. Um, and any inflatables where kids would go inside. We had a little farm farmhouse down there, a bounce house, a slide. Uh, those types of things would not be able to happen right now. But we do have a, a new inflatable that we have coming in that's going to be a batting tee uh, that you could also use for speed pitch, which we haven't had here in many years, hmm. looking to bring that back. So it's the kind of thing where, um, you know, you could simply wipe down the handle of a, of a wiffle ball bat or, uh, if we have, uh, you know, if a kid gets to throw three baseballs on the speed pitch game, you can wipe those baseballs down pretty quick. So those types of inflatables, again, that's the kind of thing we're looking at where, you know, can we utilize that area? And, and instead of having the typical things that we would have down there, bring in something different that fans could still enjoy. Steve, I've heard one of the concerns with the NFL is the locker room space. Mm -hmm. uh, and these, and a lot of these stadiums are new, facilities are new, and they're still probably not equipped properly to separate by at least six feet 
300 pound men and still fit 50, <laughs> right. 50 guys into your clubhouse space. Uh, that is an incredibly more difficult challenge in minor league baseball. Even if you're talking about 180 pound guys, um, these spaces are not built for luxury and for distance. What are the kinds of things that you're talking about uh, in your clubhouse spaces? And what have you, what have you, have you talked to other teams and people around the country about this and see what kind of things they're trying to do? And you know what, Sweeney, those are the types of things that will be determined by Major League Baseball. Um, hmm. and, and we haven't gotten a lot of that information yet. And so once we do, we'll be able to address that. But certainly I would imagine that there's going to be a need for some additional space. Uh, maybe it's some portable units that would have to come in and we would have to have some additional portable locker room space to create that kind of spacing. Right. That just hasn't been uh, that just hasn't come down from Major League Baseball yet. So we might have to move pretty quick on some of that stuff. But that's some of the things we have been thinking about and have already been doing some outreach to kind of look and see what our options are. Um, our original clubhouses here going back into from 94 and 95 were temporary clubhouses. So they do exist out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Might take a little bit more uh, work to get it into play and, and figure that's out how right. it works. Um, I, I want to get back to, you know, the, just the minor league experience and what it means to the community. A uh, lot of talk earlier this year about the contraction of minor league teams, and we'll see where that goes. Your team was not on the original list of teams that would be affected by this, but I'm sure as a person who spent his entire life in minor league baseball, that's still something that you know kind of hits you in the heart. I mean, this is this is a different kind of experience that you've made your life in, and you know firsthand what it means to to a community. So, what were your thoughts when you when you saw this first uh, this plan first uh, talked about? Well, you're right, Sweeney. That was one of the first things I thought about was just how baseball as a sport, which I think having minor league teams across the country in some of these smaller communities helps market the game uh, to to youth all around the country, and to see you know 40 markets not have minor league baseball moving forward in the, in the same vein that we know of it right now. Um, the initial thought was, was sadness. I mean, because you're right, I've been doing this since my junior year of college. I haven't done anything else, but work in minor league baseball. This has been my entire career. So I know the importance of, of a team in its community. And um, I know that here in Hudson Valley, you know, we, we've worked real hard over the years to give back to our community, to be a part of it, to be active in our community and, and, um, I think the, those areas that are that are going to lose teams um, are certainly going to be different. That it's not going to be the same once those teams aren't there. Now there are some talk of of opportunities for those communities to have um, maybe a different form of minor league baseball, and I think a lot of that's being uh, sorted out uh, through discussions right now. So, um, but yeah, my hope is is that those those communities would still have some type of minor league baseball moving forward. The um, you mentioned working in, as um, a junior in college. I, I wanted to get to this when you talked about your employees. Summer interns. That's a, are, are they counted in the hundred and fifty or so part-time employees, or is that a separate category? Uh, they're part of that group, okay. and and, and um, I started my career as an intern, so I I, I love that we're able to give um, college students the opportunity to come here and learn about. Uh, minor league baseball and what it means to work in sports uh, from the ground level and, and to be a part of all the planning that we do and, and to be out there every night and be part of the, the game action. Um, it, it, it's it's something that means a lot to me, and, and I love the fact that we're able to um, 
give college students that same type of experience here with the Renegades? Listen, I, I started as a summer intern at WFAN, and it's led me <laughs> to every, you know, my career, just as your internship led you to yours. So same. Uh, yeah. I, I, I read a story in, um, in the New York Times probably about a month ago how the disappearance of summer internships this year will have a major impact on, on kids and uh, just in the years going forward because there's a valuable experience as much as they're trying to do some e-learning type of thing and still stay involved in some sort of internship there's a difference between doing that and actually being on the ground and letting people see you work the people who are making those decisions want to see you actually work they don't just want to see your email and uh, I, I think a lot of valuable experience is lost for a lot of people because you know I thought about this Steve the idea that the minor leagues are training grounds for Major League Baseball players, they're also training grounds for Major League PR people and Major League trainers and Major League broadcasters and Major League sales executives. Um, this, is, this is an industry that is more than just the people on the field and growing the game in the minors, I mean, it's a training ground all the way up, all the way around. I, I, I always liken it to the end credits in a movie. Look at all the people who worked on this movie. It's not just the three or four stars. And you're losing a lot by losing not just this minor league season, but as we talked about in some of these other uh, 40 other places, uh, maybe losing it forever. Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, my internship in, in 1988 led to my career, which is still ongoing here in, in 2020. Um, and, uh, you know, with the, the, the students that we had lined up for internships here, we've been doing Zoom calls with them and giving them opportunity to, to see all of our planning and, and, and to still be a part of some of the planning that we're doing. Um, you know, we found out recently that, that our season's in an in, indefinite in delay. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're doing a virtual opening night. So we're letting, uh, oh. we're having them be a part of, of that whole planning process too. So, but you're right. The hands-on experiences, it's, it's, you know, we, we've been telling some of, some of our interns, we've been telling them that, that, uh, they'll have a story to tell because <laughs> this is definitely a unique experience for everybody, but, but uh, certainly for them as well. I'm glad we were able to at least come up with a program where they, we could still share our experiences with them, um, and, and have them involved to some degree in, uh, with our with our plans for this season, whatever those look like. Now, let's say, for argument's sake, that this season doesn't get off the ground in minor leagues. And I think that's, mm -hmm. we feel that it's all going to end up going eventually, but we'll wait and see. Your season doesn't start until June anyway. So is right. it an advantage to you to have that extra time? You're talking about next June before you have to open and have a game? Or is it financially a disadvantage because of all the time you're losing there? Well, it's certainly a financial hit to not have a season, um, and and I think you've heard that probably with whether it's minor league baseball or major league baseball or any of your sports, every game that you don't play um, is lost revenue. And um, I always tell people that when when I do a budget for for our season here in Hudson Valley, or when I was in for, in Florida, um, I always plan for a number of a certain number of rainouts, but I don't plan for in this case thirty eight. Sure, <laughs> there's there, there's again no playbook for that whatsoever. Yeah, so. Um, uh, in terms of, of the strangeness of not playing baseball, it was, it was very interesting when, um, when I came back here. I was in the Florida State League for 14 years, and uh, when I came back to Hudson Valley after being gone for all that time, uh, you know, I was playing baseball in Florida uh, end of February for spring training games. Mm -hmm. And then here in Hudson Valley, we don't start till mid-June. So it felt kind of strange to see spring training games on TV knowing I was right in the middle of, 
of, of all those operations going on down in Florida and, and not even thinking about baseball because it's still 25 degrees here in Hudson Valley. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're not even playing it. And, and then, you know, for, it, the way our schedule is that we don't have to start until June. So it, it'll be from a planning perspective, it, it'll be very unique because normally we would have our season go through the first week of September. Mm-hmm. We would have some downtime and then we would start planning in October. I mean, we would be able to start planning for 2021 well ahead of that. Uh, I would still rather have baseball during the summer right now. Of course. <laughs> hey, uh, one of the other unique aspects, I guess it's not as unique anymore because I think major league teams have kind of caught on to this, but the signage at minor league parks, the corporate sponsorships, the local economy, the local sponsorships, that's a big driving factor for you guys as well. What have you heard from the people who are your sponsors, the local businesses who you've counted on uh, time and time again over the years to just kind of keep renewing these things and stay, you know, it's, it's a cycle for you guys because you have a very right. s- small uh, circle to draw from. You're not, you know, getting corporate sponsors from all over the world. It's a, it's a local economy. So what are you hearing from them and maybe their ability to continue to support you, uh, whether it's this year or next year or beyond? Those conversations have been real positive, and and you know we're, we would this would have been our twenty seventh season here in Hudson Valley. A lot of those relationships go back to nineteen ninety four, mm. um, so they really want to be supportive of the team as well. And and certainly everybody's going through some tough times right now. We've we've been in communication with all of our season ticket members and our and our sponsors and our partners here, uh, going back to you know a few weeks after the the quarantine started. Uh, just keeping people up to date. You know, obviously our season wasn't scheduled to start until this Thursday, and then our first home game would have been um, next Wednesday, to, uh, so on the 24th of June. So um, we had time on our side with this whole thing, whereas all the full-season clubs were lo- already losing games mm-hmm. from back in early April. And so you know, we were just hoping, like you said before, that at some point this might have just run its course and we would have been able to start our season by June. We felt like we had time on our side, but of course that didn't play out that way. So, um, but everybody overall has been, has been real supportive and, and they want to still be a part of this, you know, when, when it does return. So again, hopefully it's this year, but if it's not, I think um, in the future, you'll still see a lot of the same partners that we've had here locally um, still be involved with the Renegades moving forward. So you mentioned the start of your career in Albany in the late eighties. Um, I did. You've got a couple of good Buck Showalter stories, I would imagine. <laughs> I do. Um, so Buck was so that was my second year in Albany. My first year uh, was in 1988, and, and um, uh, we started the season with a, a guy named Tommy Jones, who was our manager. And uh, ha- about halfway, uh, about 51 games into the season, I think it was Stump Merrill took over. So mm. uh, I got to work with Stump in my first season, and then of course Buck in 1989. We had the um, we were seventy and twenty after ninety games in wow. Albany that season. Yeah, we, we were playing seven over well over seven hundred baseball. We were just killing it, and um, we started off the season with Deion Sanders as our center fielder, and um, he uh, when he got called up uh, right around Memorial Day uh, to the Yankees straight from Double A, uh, we got a guy named Bernie Williams that was sent up to us from Prince William. Oh so. wow. That was pretty cool. Um, we had Hensley Mullins, who's now the uh, the Mets uh, bench coach. Mm-hmm. He was uh, he was our third baseman. Andy Stankowitz. I know I'm probably naming names that a lot of Yankee fans are going to recognize. Sure. Um, uh, Royce uh, Royal Clayton, rather Royce's older brother, was one of our pitchers. Oh wow! We had a guy. We had a guy named Steve Atkins who had a quick cup of coffee with the Yankees. Um, I think it was in 1990, but in '89, I want to say he was something like 14 and one for us. Oh, I mean. Wow. 
yeah, we just we just had such an amazing team. We had, you know, of course, Buck was our manager. Um, Monk Meyer, who was um, uh, Buck's, I believe, bench coach with the Yankees, was our pitching coach, and and he was on the '55 Dodgers team that oh. won the World Series, and he yeah. just had a lot of stories. But um, one of my favorite Buck stories, though, is uh, I tell this to a lot of people. Um, I, I I would go in. This is going back. So I'm going to age myself a little bit. Back before we had computers that actually figured out all the uh, the box scores every night, and they everything would come out really neat and clean. Yeah. Um, official scorers did everything with pencil and paper, and and so there was this uh, company called House Sports Data that used to do the um, the minor league box scores, and there was this eight and a half by fourteen sheet that they had a basically the top half had to match the bottom half. It was very mathematical and it would take sometimes if it was a, an extra inning game or if there were a lot of changes in the game, it would take the official score an hour and a half to two hours to, to get the uh, box score done and, and have it all corrected. And then we'd make copies and run it down to the clubhouse. So Buck, who is, I don't think he ever changed in his entire career, even as a double A manager, he would be sitting at, at his desk until hours and hours after the game would end, and he'd be filling out his reports and, and absorbing all the information. He was very locked in. Um, and so I was instructed when I would bring that, that box score down to the clubhouse to simply just walk into his office and, and literally slide it in front of him on his desk and, and don't say anything. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> so I would do, I did this for maybe the first five or six weeks of the season. And, and one night I, I went in there and, and um, I slid the, the box score in front of Buck and, and he would always acknowledge me and he would just kind of glance up at me and go, uh-huh, like, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and um, one, I just had the, uh, the guts one night to say to him, I said, hey, Buck, you ever going to say anything other than uh-huh? And he goes, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and I said, okay. And I turned around and he goes, hey, you're doing a great job. Thanks for everything. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, Buck, I mean, that, that's kind of yeah. Buck Showalter. That's just the perfect uh, scenario of, to explain how he is. He's just so locked in. And um, I was fortunate to, um, in that season, I got to wear a lot of hats. It was my second year in minor league baseball. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I love taking sports photography and I did it in college in, in Buffalo at the school newspaper there. So um, I decided to, to grab my camera and, and we won the championship the both, the both seasons that I was there. And, and I just decided to grab my camera and, and, and take pictures of the post game celebrations both years and, um, you know, back then it wasn't digital, it was film. So by the time mm-hmm. I got the film developed, the teams were gone and I was sitting <laughs> on the, and I, and I'd made a couple of like three or four sets of, 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 of the pictures and I handed some out. I had somebody dresses, some of the players and I sent those off to some of the guys, but I had uh, like two extra full sets of these pictures. Um, I think it was 2016 Buck Showalter was, um, inducted into the Florida state league hall of fame. And it was my last year in the Florida state league. And I had, knew where I had these pictures and I, and I grabbed them. And I put them in my in my uh, suit jacket and go to go to the induction ceremony. And um, here's Buck, and I hadn't seen him. I had seen him at spring training when he was managing at Baltimore, but very briefly. But I went over to him and uh, said hello, and I said, "Hey, I've been meaning to give you these for um, you know 28 years, whatever, the 27 <laughs> years." And I pulled them out, and it's all these pictures of the celebration from when we won the championship in Albany in '89. And his eyes lit up, and he was just loving looking at all these pictures of guys he hadn't seen in years. And, and uh, he was just so thankful to get those, and and um, it was really cool to just reminisce about those champion those, that championship season with him for a little bit. What was it like with Deion Sanders? It's not often you get a star of that magnitude dropped into your lap at that level of baseball, and he's no ordinary star. I mean, he's a star that you know 
he was he was pretty loud. You know, he didn't just blend in from you know just watching him in the big leagues. What was he like at a Double A level? He had a swagger, um, <laughs> and and you know back in the late eighties, the Yankees didn't move players up through the minor leagues. You had guys that were in Albany going on their third season at that point. Wow. Um, that you know were kind of landlocked there, and uh, of course Dion was um, he was in the Florida State League, I think, in Fort Lauderdale uh, the season before with Buck. So Buck knew him uh, from the season before. Uh, but, you know, here's a guy that comes up and he was with us for two months and then went right to the Yankees. Um, I would say there was probably a little bit of animosity from some of the players on that team. Yeah. Um, but you know what? Dion was 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 a real um, energetic force and, and he brought something to the to the ball club um, that was really fun to watch. I mean, you know, he, he could run. He stole bases. He played the outfield great. I mean, he was just fun to watch. He was one of these guys you, you just knew he was an athlete. And and um, I think the players enjoyed playing with him. I mean, just he he, he brought his A game every night. I mean, there was no question. Um, and and I think you know when when he got called up from from Albany, it was you know, for the Yankees especially, it was probably a little unusual. I think he actually was at Columbus maybe the season before at the end of the season, but then started with us in Double A that in, in eighty nine. So. Um, I just remember when he was called up, his, his girlfriend at the time, who I believe became his wife, but um, she was working in our office. She was helping answering phones, and, and on, it was uh, Memorial Day Monday. I'm pretty sure maybe it was the next day, but um, <laughs> he drove the, the way the ballpark was. You could literally drive your car up to the front office, like right outside mm. the door. And it was a little red sports car, and he pulls his car up, and he comes walking in the front office, and he just looked there, and he said, hey, we're going to the show. And that's how we all <laughs> found out. We're like, hey, that's awesome. Congrats, Dion. And like five hours later, we're watching the press conference on the MSG network in our office of him sitting there wow. in Yankee pinstripes. So um, it was pretty cool, but it was, it was fun. Um, you know, just being around all those guys over the years, I was, I worked in Albany before Jeter and, and Mariano mm -hmm. and, and Posada and Pettit. So all those guys passed through there as well. Albany's Albany had some great players come through over the years. And, and um, it's sad that that ballpark doesn't exist anymore, but uh, some great memories from up there. Well, and you're painting a wonderful picture for just what minor league baseball is. I mean, you might not know it at the time because you might not recognize that, you know, young Bernie Williams is going to be a guy who has his number retired uh, and mm. is in Monument Park. But uh, between fan experience and the ability to look back and say, wow, I saw this guy win. I mean, yeah. that's 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 just minor league baseball in a nutshell, right? It really is. And and. You know, no matter where I've worked, there's always been players that stand out. You know, we had Josh Hamilton here in Hudson Valley in 99 when he was 19 years old, I believe. Um, and again, you could just look at a player. I'm not I'm not a really a baseball guy. I, I'm a baseball fan. But you could look at a player um, and you can just you just know that they're going to be something special. I mean, Bernie Williams, Deion Sanders, Deion Sanders, you know, played in the NFL. Yeah. I, I, I always tell the story about um, uh I have one player in my career that's in the Hall of Fame, and who is it <laughs> that that played for a team that I work for? And everybody's always thinking baseball when I say Deion Sanders in the <laughs> NFL Hall of Fame. I always that's like a trick question. Um, but yeah, it, it really is great to see players at this level. Um, you know, they're obviously playing for a spot at the major league level, um, and and you know, I, I've worked at all different levels. I was at Double A, I was full season A here at short season A, um, and you're seeing players at, at at different maturity levels of their career. 
And, and it really is neat to see players develop and, and become major leaguers, especially for me. When, you know, I grew up a Yankees fan, and, and to start my career with a Yankees affiliate uh, was really neat. And, and to see, like you said, somebody like Bernie Williams, I, I saw him when he was so raw, still had those big, thick glasses yeah. he was wearing. And I remember him playing the, the guitar in the back of the clubhouse. You know? No kidding. <laughs> and it was just, that's the kind of things that I think about you know, behind the scenes. But you know, fans always have their stories, and, and um you know, a lot of a lot of fans here in Hudson Valley. We have host families for players, so a lot of a lot of families here locally get to know players and a very at a very personal level. And then the ones that make it to the major leagues, they don't forget their host families because those families took care of them when they were not making a whole lot of money and they didn't really know where they were or they were in a new community and um, they they took them into their homes and they they fed them and did their laundry for them and wow. it's a great thing. I always wish I had a host family, but. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, this is what minor league baseball is at, at all these different levels. And, and fans all across the country that get to experience it in their communities. Um, uh, you know, I've never spoken to anybody that said they haven't had fun in a minor league baseball game. My thanks again to Steve Gleiner. So many people depending on the return of professional sports, not just for entertainment, but for their livelihood. Here's hoping once we clear the woods on the medical and political fronts, the business war settles and allows everyone to get back to the business of playing and watching baseball. If you're new here, please check out the 30 with Murdy archive at radio.com and Apple podcasts. You can hear recent conversations with Saturday night live director, Don Roy King hall of famer, Joe Torrey and Yogi Berra biographer, John Pessa. Make sure to subscribe and review and all that jazz until next time. I'm Sweeney Murdy. Be well, be safe. And thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.